All right, and welcome to another episode of the Future Ear Radio Podcast. I am absolutely excited about today's episode. I'm joined by Madison Levine. Uh, Madison, if you wouldn't mind, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, so I'm based in Charlotte, North Carolina. I am a board-certified hearing instrument specialist. I opened my practice about seven years ago, and I had a little bit of background because my mother had a hearing aid clinic down in Georgia for 30 years. So while I didn't go into the practice with her, I was already in North Carolina when I decided I wanted to go into the profession. She mentored me all along the way, all the old school stuff. She even got carpal tunnel dremeling ear molds. Like she, she was doing all the you know, all the stuff that nobody does anymore. Right. <laughs> well, awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. Let's just start there. So, uh, you know, it's interesting. This industry seems to be full of people like me that are sort of genetically predisposed to it. Um, so obviously your mother had a huge influence on your career trajectory, but I'm curious, what was it that made you want to follow in her footpath? You know, I think it's such a cool profession for somebody who wants to work with people, but who also is interested in the sciences. There's such a balance between the two. And I had not really found my calling. Um, In fact, if you had asked me in high school what I wanted to do when I grew up, I would have said, I want to own my own, my own business. That's what I would have, you know, that's what I really thought of as what my mom did and what my dad did. I didn't really think about the actual job. And at some point, my husband's the one who pushed me into saying like, you don't like what you're doing right now. Why don't you go shadow your mom? And it was like this light bulb moment. Like, oh, maybe I could actually do what she does and enjoy it. So did you work underneath her for a period of time? Did you just kind of shadow her, observe her? Um, what was that? How long was that period of, 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 of observation before you then embarked on your own path? Just a couple weeks. Really? I mean, I really had one of those like early 20s, like flame out. I hate what I'm doing. Totally. Quit my job. What do I really want to do with my life? Get out of town for two weeks, shadow her. Okay, here's what I want to do. And so coming back to Charlotte, figuring out how do I get sponsored and get apprenticed? I called every facility in Charlotte and the ENTs weren't interested the franchises were all interested. And so I had basically a pick of where do I want to go to get trained? And I ended up choosing to go with somebody who was more like a private practice Audubon and who had taught 30 years down in Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina. And so I felt like if I'm going to go pick who I want to study under, let me pick the guy who teaches. And it, it was definitely a really good decision because I think that mentorship even though it wasn't my mom, he, he was wonderful as a mentor. That's cool. Okay. So you go, you get your mentorship, you sort of start to learn the ropes. Were you then also, um, doing all of the educational coursework to become board certified at the same time? Well, you have to do it kind of one and then the other. Okay. So first I went through the normal state licensure apprenticeship, and then you have to have worked for another year or two before you can go take the national board certification, which it seems like there's a lot of people and maybe audiologists who have never heard of it. And so there's some little buzz like board certified. What is that? They're making it up or something. But I think it's just not that well known, but it is um, just like you would go sit for your real estate exam or your series seven you sign up, you better study your tail off and you go sit at one of these facilities and you, you take your exam. Gotcha. Okay. So you do that. So, and you said you started your private practice seven years ago. So this was probably in totality. What like, was that part of your uh, journey? Was that like a year or how long was the um, becoming certified? It was a couple years. So I didn't get the board certification until I'd actually already opened my practice. Gotcha. Like I said, I knew I wanted to to run a practice and there was some hope that maybe the person I was training under that I might end up moving up within that and maybe even buying one or multiple of those offices. There came a point where I decided that wasn't the right direction. 
And so I veered left and just put it out there. And I just started from scratch. So, you know, I'd saved pennies for a couple years and startup was pretty inexpensive. I didn't hire anybody else. It was just me. Um, and I, literally people would call, I'd answer the phone, they'd walk in the door, I'd offer them coffee, and then I'd appear and take them back to do their hearing test. So it was, it was like a comedy show, but <laughs> the people who, who trusted me the, in that beginning, they're all still patients. If they're here, they're all still patients. And that's so cool for them to have trusted me right there in the beginning and, and see where we are now. I think it's, I mean, the reason I'm so excited to talk to you is you're truly one of the most impressive entrepreneurs I feel like I've had on this podcast because you started, like you said, from, you just made it happen, right? Like you just said, look, I want to do this. And you did what you needed to do to, you know, whether it be the impetus of it all to go down, shadow your mom, then you go, you find this mentor, you go and you kind of get this training and then you go and you become certified and then you launch a private practice. And this is the thing that's like, uh, you know, I, for, for young people in this industry or really anybody, but you know, the people that are like just getting started, I think that there's this like paralysis that can set in where you're just like, I don't even know where to begin because yeah, I would love to start my own practice, but how do I even go about getting my first patient? And, and how does it cascade from there to where it's like a full on legitimate business, but you've done it like in, 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 and we're going to get into like where you're taking your business now, but I want to focus on this first portion of it, of how you even got your business off the ground. Cause I feel like that's gotta be one of the most challenging parts of, of the whole story. It is. It's probably the scariest part for anybody, right? Is okay. I've spent my own money and now I'm waiting for somebody to call the phone and I'll tell you a really crazy little side story. Um, I knew I was going to need to do some marketing to get the word out there. And of course I was going to go take, you know, information to all the primary care doctors and all the senior facilities. I did all that, but my very first thing I did was a mailer. And it was like $3,000 for this mailer. That's a lot of money. Yeah. My money, right? And this is just crazy. I sent the mailer. It should have hit. A day goes by. I haven't gotten any calls. Day two, I'm sitting there at my desk, you know, by the phone, by myself, like waiting for somebody. And I pull out the mailer and I'm just staring at it. And, you know, it's a brand new business with a brand new phone number. I had reversed two of the numbers. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and I just cried. Oh my gosh. I mean, that's the truth. Yeah. And I called my husband and he's been my biggest supporter through everything. And he, he was not phased. He goes, we'll just go get that phone number. I'm like, how, there's no way I'm going to get that <laughs> phone number. 30 minutes later, I had that phone number miraculously forwarding to my phone number. And I made a couple sales from that mailer and it paid for it. Wow. That is a, how creative he is. He's just like, nothing is a roadblock. He's like, we'll just fix it. But that's one of those things that that can be, it can be so overwhelming that like, that's enough to, I feel like make somebody just throw their arms up and be like, what am I doing? So the fact that you kind of like persevered through that is amazing. And I feel like a lot of like small businesses have those kinds of stories of just crazy things. Like I know with my parents in, in Oak tree, there were all kinds of these really weird serendipitous moments that just happened that like we look back on and I hear these stories and they're like, we literally, by the grace of God, had this miracle basically occur that saved the business and let us stay afloat for another month. And it seems like it, it that like really like when it's just a little embryo of a business, like you need all the luck you can get and you're just kind of scrapping by. But um, I'm curious to hear like, what were some of those like big kind of watershed breakthroughs for you where it felt like you actually had a step change and now you're into another, maybe you've matured a little bit to the point where it's not like you're on the, on death's door every single day as a business. Totally. I love that watershed moments. You know, I, there are probably a thousand ways to start a business and all I have is my perspective and others will have different advice. 
but um, it's also how I work in my life is I really believe that cash flow, cash is king. So I wasn't going to start a business unless I had saved some money so that I could start it with my money. I didn't take money from anybody else. And then as I went forward, I knew I would do a piece of marketing and then I would make enough to pay it back and then some, and I do another piece of marketing. And so some might think that that was slower. I think seeing where we are now and how healthy the business is, there's no other way I would have rather have done it. Um, but month after month, probably at month three or four, I had made back everything I'd put in it. Um, and so from there, I wasn't actually taking a salary. So I will say I did have a privilege of being married, living like we were in college and just, you know, not having any major expenses. Yeah. Um, so I didn't take a salary until about month nine. So that was a benefit for sure. But at month nine, I also hired my first employee. That was a big, that's shift. a big deal to be able to have a role that I didn't have to fill and then to really only focus on clinical marketing, business development. And when you're that small, when you've got somebody in the front and you're in the back, you're doing all those things. You're doing the accounting, the marketing, the development, that's it. Going, the next step that happened was I was able to have two babies in the middle of this and take 90 days maternity leave both times because I decided that's what I wanted. And so yeah. I did it by hiring my first hearing instrument specialist to back me up right before I had my first baby. She carried me through, she filled in for me on my second baby and then hiring my first audiologist in 2020 was a big leap up in terms of capacity for the business and she's awesome so that's so lucky you can't always can't always see like how great an employee is going to be until they get going how did you find your employees i started sending out blind messages on linkedin to wow. people uh and just she was one of a few that answered and she was definitely the best candidate yeah. It's amazing. I, 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 I mean, I just think, again, it's kind of like, uh, you know, what I've gathered from you of just kind of observing you. And I should say that, like, you know, when I joined Oak Tree full time in 2016, there was like a real small amount of people that were the people on social media at that time. And you were one of them. So I kind of like, I was just kind of seeing you from a distance and seeing like how you were building your business. And it was really fascinating um, because, again, that, that was, you know, about five or six years ago. So right as you were getting started and, um, to see like what you're doing with your business today is just so impressive. But I think that it, it's really cool to hear like how this even begins. Um, because again, I think that that's not talked about enough of how do you even get started? Um, cause I think that the de desire and the demand is there for, um, professionals of all types in this industry to start their own business. There's, uh, you know, so many different appealing things about it, but I think that like, when you really sit down and you're like, okay, how am I going to get that first sale? What am I going to do for that? How much of a, um, upfront investment am I going to have to make to like, make this work? What's this whole trajectory going to look like? You have to like outline a business plan and all this. And this is, I think like, uh, kind of epitomizes like one of the one of the things about this industry, I guess, to put it lightly is like, it's a, it's a medical field that's tasked with having like a pretty strong business acumen. Um, and so there's like, you're trained as a, if you go and you get the AUD, you're trained in, in all of clinical audiology and in, in the field of science, but then it's like, how do you apply that in a commercial way? How do you make that a, a viable business? Um, and so I think that's a really, that part of the whole equation right now, I think needs more attention. That's why I'm so fixated on it. Not saying I'm the solution or anything, but I'm just saying, that's why I think it's so interesting is it's a really weird dichotomy in this industry that like, it's a very business oriented industry really. 
but it's populated primarily by medical professionals. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard for them to shift gears. You mentioned a business plan. I've written three so far, (laughs) and I'm sure others have done one every single year, but I did my first one at the end of that first year. I did a second one and I wrote a new business plan three or four months ago before launching some of the things that we're doing now. But I think, you know, you graduate with a degree or you get a certification and we all know that's not the end of learning, right? Right. We know we're going to go CEUs on clinical information. But how are you going to educate yourself on business, whether it's looking for mentors or it's buying like, just go buy the top five books on business. I mean, that, that's your starting point. Yeah. Um, but the best advice I could give anybody is the cash flow. I think so many people are not watching their numbers and the, the data will tell you everything you need to know. I'm checking all of our numbers daily middle of the day in the afternoon, I'm looking at um, everything from like, how many appointments did we see? What was the revenue? Um, I wanna see what appointments did we miss out on because we took these, like probably the biggest shift we've had recently is paying much more attention to scheduling. Interesting. How we work the schedule will tell us everything about how the math is gonna work out. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that you're right that, um, you know, being able to read a balance sheet is like really important. And again, that's not something that you're going to really be unless you're going through undergrad or something and you're getting that you're going to just only be able to probably get that firsthand um, by being shadowing and getting that mentorship, like you said, or actually just having uh, a trial by far. And just like having to be thrown into it and just be like, okay, like here's how you need to make sure that you're, like you said, it's like the cash flow thing. And I think um, going off of that is the idea of like incrementalism and just like taking, I think it's really important to constantly find ways to improve, but not try to do like so much at once that you overwhelm yourself or, you know, you, you do so much that you're investing either too much time or too much money in a small amount of time that you're then in debt or something like that. So I think that, can you speak to that a little bit about your mentality of just kind of like this slow buildup that it seems like you've been doing? Yeah. Well, it did feel slow in the beginning, but once I decided how much salary I wanted to take, you know, they say pay yourself first, which is, I don't think true in a startup. <laughs> I think that is um, very wishful thinking. Right. And I think a lot of people have this very like, um, just privileged mentality. Like you're starting up a business, you're probably not going to stop at Starbucks three days a week. Um, and you may buy a used sound booth and you might not buy temps the first year and all of that is okay. And you can still run a really effective business and make people really happy by making wise choices with the funds that you have at hand. So I just think a lot of people really get messed up by whether they're taking an SBA loan a manufacturer loan, they're, they're committing to something that they think makes sense, but look at like, what's the worst case scenario? Could you survive the worst case scenario? And how long, how much cash do you have on the side? And I think a lot of people are not prepared for that. Yeah, that's a good point. So I'm going to like categorize your businesses, like uh, we'll call it phase one and phase two. Maybe you would categorize it differently. Like you've had more phases in between the beginning and and where you are now, but can you maybe walk me through before we start to get into the different services that you're starting to incorporate into your business now, can you kind of just give me an idea of a day in the life of in, in your clinic um, that's, you know, relatively busy, like what types of patient visits were you seeing? What was your sweet spot? Um, I'm just curious of, of the kinds of patient interactions that you had, um, in phase one, if you will. Yeah. Well, that's a really good 
way to do it, to, to split it up into two, actually. I like that. Um, let me go back one step to where I trained was more rural. And we had a lot of people who'd worked in weaving mills, a lot of industrial noise, um, poor healthcare outcomes. And so we had a lot of profound losses, a lot of BTEs. And so when I opened in Charlotte, I really was expecting more of the same. I wasn't really prepared for the shift for that phase one, which was um, I ended up in a pretty affluent area where I see tons of mild to moderate high frequency hearing losses that are just age related, sometimes some noise. Um, but that's my like normal garden variety person. Um, a lot of them are well-educated, they're working, and I think my average age is younger than most. Our, our average patient age is about 65. Okay. And it's these people that are still working and feeling like they're just losing their edge and they want to get it back. Interesting. Okay. So you would say that like the patient demographic that you're primarily seeing are people that are actually actively coming and seeking you out rather than the, you know, like the quintessential example that we hear the scenario of the, you know, the wife dragging the husband in because um, he's turning up the TV too loud or something like that. Like, it's not as much that it's more of people that are actively coming and seeking you out saying, I think I have an issue. Can you help me? I, yes. You know, we got a variety of everything, but I would say that's my my main demographic, which is really interesting uh, that it's happened that way. So we just, we don't do that many BTEs anymore. A lot more RICs. I love custom products too. I, we do a fair amount of IICs. We've got, it's been really fun. We've gotten a lot of public figures, especially over the last two years, people I've just gotten so excited about, and they're not like celebrities. They're people that own you know, global companies or something where, you know, they're people that I want as my mentors because I'm so yeah. excited. That is me, cool. Them, right? um, really and neat. so a lot of them will pick something like an IIC. They're doing something super discreet. Cool. Yeah. All right. So let's start to get into where you're taking your business now. Um, again, I think that, you know, when we were kind of chatting a little bit beforehand, um, the, the, I get so excited when I get a chance to speak to people like you who are really, I think, uh, seizing the opportunities that are presenting themselves in these new exciting directions that I think hearing healthcare is broadly moving in. And, you know, for a long time, we were in this period where you could kind of see this tidal wave coming, where you knew that something was on the horizon that was going to be this forcing function of like, you're going to have to start to do things that truly differentiate you in a world where the just a straight up hearing aid clinic that's kind of becoming commoditized. You know, I think that if there's anything that's like really truly under threat from the big box retail expansion, online hearing aids, OTC, it's a single one trick pony, I think, that's just doesn't even do best practices per se. It's just like I, you come in and I'm going to fit you with hearing aids with the, uh, you know, the fit that comes with the the device itself. And so I, I get excited because I think that there's so much more opportunity out there in these things that were constantly this narrative. That's like, there's all these threats. These things really aren't threats in my opinion, so long as you're willing to take it upon yourself to like research, what opportunities are uh, out there and, and how you can pursue those. And so as somebody that's actually living this, you can speak to it much better than I can. Can you just kind of walk me through what the opportunities are and the avenues that you're going and what your sort of like due diligence process was when you were vetting these and, and trying to understand like, is this right for me? Yeah. I loved earlier. You said something about chicken little and the sky is falling. <laughs> what everybody says. Yeah. Um, and if you're on these Facebook forums, there's so much doom and gloom. Oh my gosh. It's the worst. I think a lot of it is coming from people that are looking at being towards the end of their career too. Yep. And they are scared about the changes. I've just always kept such a positive outlook. I really believe that positivity attracts more positivity. 
So for, for example, I really do not believe in looking at last February and then saying, well, this February is gonna be low because every February is low. I think that's ridiculous. And when I actually look in my last seven years, every trend I thought was there, then wasn't. Last June was my lowest month of 2021. This June is our best month ever. If I had said, might as well vacation in June because <laughs> don't buy hearing aids then. Right. That's what people do. Even my mother did that. She would say December. Nobody buys hearing aids in December. So she'd kind of take the month Pack off. Pack it in. <laughs> yeah. And I just don't believe in that. I think if you believe you're going to have a good month, then you're going to do the things to make that happen. And that's a side note. I do a lot of marketing. That's a passion of mine. Um, but as far as the services that we've added and why we have done it. I think you are right on, on those retail centers that are just churn and burn, not even best practice. I think they should be scared because they are not that different than the thing you're gonna buy on the internet. Exactly. So somebody can choose to pay more money to walk into one of those and get whatever that is. I don't think those places are going to survive. I think we're going to see a huge, just, I think they're going to die. I mean, the only thing I can imagine is almost like you've got these like little service centers that'll service your vacuum and repair it for you. I mean, you could be a little repair shop for hearing aids, but if you're not leaning into the medical model of like owning your whole credentials, I want to practice to the full scope of my credentials and I want the audiologist working for me to practice their full scope as well because the patients deserve it and because they actually need all those services. And I think we've done ourselves a whole disservice by boiling down what we all do down to this like little tiny thimble full so that the community doesn't even know who to call when they get vertigo. They, they don't even, they don't even know that if they're, in radiation or chemotherapy that they should be having their hearing screen before and during like the doctors are busy. So I'm not blaming them for not referring more, but we have not done a great job of educating consumers ourselves so that they know that they can come to us for all these things that we can do. Yeah. I mean, I uh, have said it before. Like, I think that it's, a large part of this is the narrative is the, it's the perception that's, that's really been created around the profession as a whole of being synonymous with hearing aids. And you know what? Hearing aids are great. Like hearing aids are, uh, they're primarily, you know, they're a medical class, class one, class two FDA grade medical device, and they serve a really important purpose. But again, to your point, if that's the only thing that people associate you with, you're dramatically reducing the, the, the surface area of what you could be doing. And, and this is why I think like this resurgence of vestibular. And I think this whole new Avenue into cognition, like the whole, like the beyond just the peripheral auditory system. And once you start to go into the central auditory system, like there's so much here. And again, that's where I kind of am at the point where now that I'm seeing the viability of these new entryways into these different revenue generating opportunities, I roll my eyes at the idea and this notion of like, you're under siege by Costco or uh, by, you know, whatever online hearing aid retailer exists, because that's assuming that you're providing the exact same level of care of all these different people. And it goes back to the value proposition. And this is something that I feel like you do unbelievably well. And you, you really understand like, this is something that you, it really resonates with you is to say, I have to be different. Like I, I can't look myself in the, in the mirror and say that I can charge a premium for a set of hearing aids that I know are the exact same type of device that they can get elsewhere. It might just be white labeled. So what am I doing to warrant somebody to come in and see me and pay out of pocket or whatever that might be? And this is like that where the rubber is meeting the road kind of thing. And I think that 
What's exciting is there are so many different examples of what you could do, not even necessarily just all these new avenues, but like getting back to best practices and being able to like demonstrate to a patient, here's the value that I'm providing you with. There's, there's a lot of low hanging fruit in that regard, I think. Oh, I agree on the best practice front. (laughs) So there's so much conversation around that. Right. And what is the thing that everybody talks about real ear, right? Yep. I love real ear and we do it on every patient. And I think we're shooting ourselves in the foot by only naming that one thing all over the internet, all over everywhere. That's like the buzzword. And I'm going to tell you, they're going to figure out a way to get real ear in your home and send a device home. And then if you pinned your entire worth on that one thing, mm-hmm. I just think that's a mistake because what is best practice? So many things besides that one. Yes. So many. Um, and so, yeah, I, I just, I believe that we should not be intimidated at all by competition. Competition is awesome. I'm a little bit of a capitalist, so I believe in that. And all it does is make me do some little brain flips and think about, okay, so what can I do to add another service, to add value? Um, And I don't think we need to operate from a place of fear. I think that's obvious to your patients when you do that. Um, Confidence is the key to everything. So back to kind of the services that we're, we're adding. So for one thing, I went and put a little personal sound enclosure in every one of our rooms, which I'm thrilled about because it just, it gives us such an ease to say, well, let's just check. Let's just go ahead and throw you back in the booth. That's a best practice is instead of putting it off, because, oh my gosh, we didn't schedule the booth for today, but it seems like they need it. Let's just make it easy. And people tease about this thing and they, you know, some people think that it's a beginner booth and then you graduate to like buying yourself a big $10,000 booth or something. They work great. So that's, that's the first thing. We, we bought an irrigator and we're probably going to buy a couple more. They are quick and easy. And again, you get better results for a patient and you can quickly and efficiently get them through an appointment without having to send them to the ENT to come back to you. Of course, we've added balance and we're right in the heat of that right now. So we're seeing our first patient for real next week. That's awesome. So this, this morning, our fourth year was getting spun around. <laughs> Love it. Um, and that to me is, it's, it's so much for us. It's not just being able to say, hey, here's another service that we provide. How many of our patients are struggling with dizziness, imbalance, and vertigo? My patient base is already going to be my best referral source for that added revenue stream without even having to go out and and market, that's the first place we're gonna start, right? Um, So how can you take your existing patient base and what what else can you offer them that they want and they would go somewhere else to get, but they can get it from you? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot here that I wanna touch on. So I think, first of all, uh, you know, this idea of best practices, um, a lot of it is actually more like a more optimal patient experience. You know, it's a, it's the way that you're making them feel and everything that you're touching on, uh, we're going to put you back in the sound booth here. Um, you know what? I also offer these balance, um, services for you so that we can look in, you know, dizziness is like one of the most pervasive things out there. Falls are gigantic. It's like the number one modifiable risk out there of for, for older adults, like over 65. And so, um, these things are really obvious to me because I think ultimately what it comes down to is like, if you put yourself in this patient's shoes, it's a different experience. It doesn't feel like I'm 
not really listening to, or I'm not um, being heard, you know, how many of these people come in and they leave and they're like, I didn't feel like this actually treated the root of the issue. They were just trying to fit me with a hearing aid. They, And so I, what I'm ultimately getting at here is if you do all these things, what it amounts to is it's a totally different perception that they have of you. And, and I think part of why I'm so bullish on like this move more toward the medical side of things is how different is that conversation when you do this battery of tests, you run them through these diagnostics, and then you tell them objectively, this is why you need a hearing aid. It's a lot different than just initially starting the conversation off and being like, all right, let's see, hmm, you know, cosmetically, this would look good on you. And, and, and it's like, you're not actually getting to the root of the thing. And there isn't this sort of implicit expectation that you're going to walk out of here with a pair of hearing aids. We're going to just figure out why it is that you're even coming in here in the first place. Yeah, exactly. No, you're so right about that. Their experience is everything. And I have a, I have a dear friend who is a registered dietitian and we talk a lot because she's built up her practice. She has dietitians and therapists under her. And what she's really pushed into is more of a neurological standpoint. She's gone to all kinds of trainings that you wouldn't think a dietitian would go to, but she's realized that what she does is a form of therapy. You know, the way she's communicating with patients on a weekly basis, I don't think that we're leaning in enough to our therapy skills. And I don't know if I'm stepping on any toes of like what I'm, you know, I'm not saying real therapy is part of our <laughs> scope, right? But I mean, you go to some seminars and some things where they teach you about sales, right? And I think some people hate that word. They, they vilify it. They imagine the used card salesman and all that. But really what you're doing is learning the skills to communicate with people, to create trust. You're learning how to mirror them. I mean, I notice some of this may just be just part of me, but I notice when I'm talking to people, if they're leaning forward, I'm leaning forward. If they're leaning back, I'm leaning back. And I don't even do it on purpose. But when you get out of your own head, the thing you're trying to sell them, what you're trying to get them to do, and you start really looking at the patient and looking at them and thinking about them, like, what are they here for? What do they want from me today? How can I listen to them and address their pain point? Everybody wants to work with you. Yeah. It's not hard. Yeah. Not magic. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's just all, again, it's this whole notion of like, you are, it goes back to like, what's your point of differentiation? And I've, I've like written about this and presented on it. And the thing I always come back to is um, this quote. And I quote this all the time. It's this guy, Dr. Uh, Christopher Scheitzer, I think is what his name is. And he said, like, I'm kind of just, you know, freewheeling here. I can't remember exactly verbatim, but it, it, the gist of it is like in a world where the device itself is becoming commoditized, there's like that implies that the demand for uh, expertise will go up as well, because like you're basically making it so that the actual facilitation of the device itself is really low friction. And so the provision of knowledgeable expertise is what becomes in such high demand. And this is like, I think at the root of it all is if you can figure out how to effectively be a provision of expertise, whether it's, if you're an AUD, figure out how to use your education. Like that's what you have that really differentiates you. If it's, if, if you're like yourself and you're a hearing instrument specialist, that you're a, oh, just a powerhouse businesswoman, like you are where you're figuring out, okay, I, I want to hire an audiologist so that I can have them facilitate these things within my business, then do that. So I think that again, it goes back to this notion of like, look at the, like, look at the competitive landscape and kind of create almost a checklist of like, what do you think is going through the mind of the leadership team at these big box retailers? It's volume. 
it's churning and burning. It's, you know, so they're trying to make it so that that's like, that's their priority. And you know what? That's great. Like, honestly, there's a lot of people that are probably really happy with the set of hearing aids that they get from those types of places. But like, you have to understand that if you're going to create a very similar service in that, you can't charge a thousand dollars more than them and just expect that people are going to pay that. And so I think that it comes back to this whole notion of like, well, what are you going to do different? And this is where, again, I think it's, going full circle is like a few years ago, I didn't know the answer to this. And now I'm starting to see these answers sort of just like materialize before my eyes. And so it's like what you're saying now, it's like, we're going to start to implement balance into our business. So can you walk me through like what that specific one has been like for you? Yeah. So we did become, we did partner with the American Institute of Institute of Balance as a center of specialty care. And that was big because I haven't done partnerships like that. Like I hadn't done buying groups and those kinds of things. And so I did vet it very well. Um, some of my mentors around me all had great things to say about them and had either worked there or used them themselves. So that gave me a lot of confidence. And I will say after having come back from training last week, I was so impressed. Um, They've really thought through every piece as far as, you know, giving you everything you need kind of on a platter. It is a lot, a lot, a lot. So I don't think anybody should dip their toe in. I think if you're going to do it, you better be prepared that it's, it's like giving birth. (laughs) That's what it feels like. (laughs) Um, Like pushing a rock up a hill. Um, because it changes, it breaks everything. It changes the way that we have done business. Insurance is gonna be much more heavily used for vestibular than it was for hearing aids. Training up my whole team, some of whom have experience and balance and some are getting their first experience. It's a huge investment, it's a lot of equipment. We went all the way with the rotary chair and everything. Um, but I'm not scared at all. There's so many people to help. So can you, what, like if you had to boil it down to uh, a single, you know, bullet point, like what, what was it that ultimately sold you on this? Was it, I'm going to be able to see more people? Was it, I'm going to potentially make my business such a, different, it's going to be perceived differently in the eyes of my current patients that they would not only be eligible for these vestibular services, but it would make the conversation of hearing aids that much easier. Maybe all of it. I'm just curious of like, again, as a a businesswoman like yourself, like what was it that ultimately made you want to pursue this? You kind of said it in your second statement, credibility. Yeah. That's it. Um, I think I've spent a lot of years bringing little baskets of cookies to primary care doctors (laughs) yeah, and making zero headway. I know that other people have successfully done that. I've done a lot of other things successfully. I don't know why I have spent countless hours. I've hired people. I've done it myself. I've just really struggled. And some of it might be because we have a behemoth ENT in town. It was very easy for them to refer anything and everything to, but I think that this is going to be a major shift in how we're seen and pulling us out of what started as a retail hearing aid clinic, what turned into audiology dispensing and what now is moving into like full audiological services. So as a hearing instrument specialist, what role do you see yourself playing? Not uh, again, kind of like take off your, um, the business owner hat, but from a practical standpoint, what is that line of demarcation of like, you know, what uh, audiologist can do and what an instrument specialist can do in this realm of the science? It's a little tricky when you look at insurance billing, we're going to need to make some decisions here in the near future about what types of appointments who gets, right? I have one other HIS here and I have an apprentice right now. I have two audiologists and a fourth year. 
So we've got kind of an even split. Obviously we can do everything hearing aid related, but as we move into billing more insurance for vestibular, we're probably going to be also pursuing other hearing aid related billing codes that we haven't in the past. Interesting. So we'll see kind of how, how it goes because, you know, maybe the audiologist can bill for a hearing exam and I can't. So we may, we're going to have to figure some of that out, but that's a really good question. So going back to what you were saying earlier about the scheduling aspect of things, is this kind of cut to that is that now you have to be really specific with how you're going to assemble your days and what you're going to stack, you know, back to back and that kind of thing. Yeah. My husband owns dental practices Okay, and that he didn't in the beginning, but at this point he does. And so he got a whole education on, you know, how to, how to do so many columns, got maybe one doctor and multiple hygienists. And that's been really helpful to kind of compare that model to ours. I love I that. I love that. Um, I think they're actually, we, as an, I've used that as an analogy before, and you probably are way more knowledgeable with this whole analogy than I am, but I actually think we, we should be probably looking at the dental, um, kind of the construct of a dental office, um, and be, there's a lot that I think you can learn there of how maybe the, uh, practice of the future in audiology and hearing healthcare might be designed. Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the next step is, um, taking one provider and having more Odotech help for that provider. Um, Jill Caseworm was just sharing recently that she had a provider that just did 200,000 in a month in revenue. Wow. And it's like, I want to do that. <laughs> and I asked yeah. her, how, okay, first of all, <laughs> how did you fit that in the schedule? Not that, I mean, I'm, I know he's good and everything, but how did you schedule that? Mm. And this is where you take, this is where we need to act like other professions. And I say we, I mean, I, I don't know if I'm speaking more to audiology or HISs here, but where you take who is the most qualified person in the room, let them only do the things that only they can do. If someone else can do it, then let someone else do it. So um, number one, we are block scheduling which my husband pushed and pushed. And I hated the idea because I didn't want patients to be upset. If they want to come in Tuesday and we tell them you can't come in at 10 o'clock, but nobody's on the schedule for 10. We're just holding it for a hearing evaluation. I want to give it away. Mm -hmm. I can't. That's interesting. We have to block schedule for revenue generating appointments. And then the second Part of that is how can we split up appointments so that the most qualified person only does what only they can do. And we're moving into that next week. I'm excited. We're, we're blocking off some appointments. So this is probably old hat to some people that have done it forever, but I've always done my whole fitting, you know, sit down, do real ear, do programming, and then teach them everything about the hearing aid in process. And we're going to split that out into a hearing aid orientation appointment with a tech, right? And multiple things we're doing with other appointments to split it up too. And so what am I going to do? I'm going to give myself back 45 minutes in every fitting. How many hours am I going to get back a week where I could either be producing or doing business development? Yeah. I mean, I think this is like um, a really important topic is this whole idea of how do you actually design uh, a a practice built for the future? I hear so much, and I'd be curious to get your thoughts on this. On you know, really the biggest threat everybody seems to have is are these um, third party in, insurance companies, and um, you know because like obviously it's um, the reimbursement rates seem to be going down and down and down, and it's just like really not even viable. And what I always wonder 
and it seems like it's so variable is look at the end of the day, you have to look at the patient acquisition cost. And so how much money do you have to spend to get somebody to come into your door? And so if you understand that a lot of these people, you're not actually spending a dime, they're coming in through their insurance in my mind. And, and, and trust me, this could just be my own naivety. I don't know. It seems like maybe the, the way in which that patient is like flowing into your office is just, it's not conducive. And so you have to use and I know that a lot of this is stipulated around like what, you know, kind of professional has to facilitate the care, um, you know, in terms of it being reimbursable, but it seems to me like if you have something that looks again, more like a dental office that you're only seeing the, uh, the dent, the dentist for five minutes and you're seeing the hygienist for 95% of the time. Um, what's the analogous thing in our industry to that? Because like, that seems to be something that we need to figure out. And I think that you're definitely getting there with it's, it comes down to how you schedule it. And then you've got to use some of these support roles within the profession, um, in a, in an effective way, I think, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I know this is a huge hot button issue. The insurance part's hard. And so I don't have strong advice because I know that every region is so different. And so maybe I'm not, maybe it'll be harder for me at some point. And I just haven't, it hasn't happened yet. Um, But I've always been, maybe I've been blessed with an overabundance of confidence or something. I think, you know, my dad always was like, you can do anything. If they can do it, you can do it. Not that I don't have my doubts and have my times and all that, but I believe that people will private pay for things if they believe that it's worth it. And I believe that you have to test what the market will bear. And if the market will bear it, then that's the cost of that item. So if insurance comes in and sweeps up every business, you know, in Charlotte, and so everyone has the same coverage and they all know that they get some discounted product or something, maybe it'll be more of a problem for me. But right now, um, people who come in with some kind of third-party benefit, a true hearing or a hear.com or whatever it is, They come in, they have a fantastic experience, they trust us, and we give them the option, we would love to help you with what we're available to help you with. You can go talk to your insurance and see who might accept and be a network for this benefit. I don't know what the discount is. I don't know what products they might provide. I would love to help you. And I think if you've done a really good quality job, the vast majority of them are going to pick you. Now, I am in a more affluent area, so I might be also a little tricked by that. I know in in other areas, people are going to have more issue where they're going to have to go where they can get the cheapest care. Um, But I don't think you have to lean into that. I think you can, you know, test it and see, like, if I present them the option because I see on these forums, people will say a patient came in with true hearing today. I let them know that they could get hearing aids for half the price somewhere else. And you're like, do you even know that? Right. If you're not a member of true hearing, how do you even know how much their products are? Why did you just send the patient somewhere else? Mm-hmm. Why didn't you give them the option to choose the higher value care? Right. Or why didn't you, why don't you come up with a way to where those patients can be seen in a cost-effective manner for you because you're like matching them to the appropriate type of labor. And it seems like, again, like there's very few businesses that I can think of where it's makes sense to be turning people away from your business. So I'm sympathetic to the whole thing. And I've heard both sides and you, I, it's like, I've heard every single aspect of, of it, but it's just something where it's like, it's not really going to go away. Um, so it seems like, how do we actually kind of like live with this? And I don't know, I think you have the right approach though, which is to say, you know, again, it goes back to your value and, and making that an upfront expectation and not necessarily turning them away, but doing expectation setting up front. So I don't want to like 
lecture people on how to, on, on how to do all that. I'm just truly curious of like, is it actually more of a business model uh, issue than it is, you know, anything else? I don't know. I, I'll also say this. One of the best lessons I've ever heard is don't spend out of your own pocket. So just because you think somebody's going to want to go get something cheaper somewhere else, or you, or you look at someone and you assume that they can't afford the best, you're wrong. You have no idea. You do not know who has money and who does not have money. And you don't know what is motivating their financial decisions. When I was in rural areas, people financed premium hearing aids all day long because they wanted the best. And here we are in, in, in this area, and I, it doesn't matter if they're more affluent in general, you can't look at somebody and assume you're probably gonna wanna look at this side of the page. You don't need to worry about those more expensive options. Are we trying to actually help them hear their best or are we, are we trying to just figure out what's the easiest sale to make? Right. And we, so, yeah. So we'll change topics here kind of to, to wrap things up here. Um, I would be remiss not to talk to you about social media. Uh, you're awesome at it. And, uh, but again, like, you know, I think that what's, really interesting um, that's going on right now. Another thing that I think is awesome and really interesting to kind of like watch unfold is the creator economy within our niche medical industry. Um, You know, it's like, again, going back to how it's like, I know, I knew you from afar years ago, just based on how you were you know, kind of like presenting yourself online on the different social channels. And now it's like, we're seeing, um, this, you know, all kinds of new ways in which you can reach people, whether it's through these new forms of social media, but I'm just curious to kind of get your thought process on the power of using a platform, uh, to brand yourself, to build your business. Um, can you just share a little bit about, uh, you know, your experience and, and how you view social media as being a tool, uh, a business development tool. Yeah. Well, I think it's just that. I think it's a tool in your tool belt. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't stake everything on it or on just one medium within it. But I think if, if you're ignoring it completely, that you're missing a whole set of eyeballs. And A lot of people will poo-poo it and say, well, the over 65 crowd isn't on Instagram. So why would I do that? Or they certainly think they're not on TikTok. But who are we trying to reach? Not just the patient themselves, but also their children and their grandchildren who are helping them make decisions. I get patients from social media. It's part of why I do it. Um, part of it's the branding. So if somebody wants to go look me up, they're going to find some of that. And you have to ask yourself, you know, what is your brand? Maybe you don't want to do some of these funny videos I'm doing. I'm sure some people (laughs) look at them and they're like, that is so unprofessional. (laughs) They would not want to venture into it. And I get that. Um, But it's really more me. I'm a little bit silly and I'm really myself with patients. I'm appropriate. I don't use things with cuss words. I don't do crazy inappropriate dances or anything. It's just funny stuff. And frankly, if you're boring, nobody wants to watch you. Right. So you've got to be interesting enough and you have to be at least a little bit on trend or else all you're going to do is just put out boring content and you should be doing something else with your time because it's not going to pay you back. Yeah. I mean, I just think that again, it's like, you got to just find whatever works for you, whatever you're comfortable with. I think there's lots of different avenues. And I think it's just really interesting that like now we're seeing um, all these different um, types of creators that are, you know, people that are putting out uh, really educational content on an Instagram page and they use stories really effectively. They pull their patients. You know, I, I just think that, again, like I 
was in college when Twitter was launched, when Instagram was launched. So I was, I'm 32. So I'm, I'm 34. Okay. So we're right around the same age. So it's like, I kind of saw the early stages of it where it was hard to really understand like how this would all be used in a business setting. And then Facebook came around and it was like, okay, so you have, well, Facebook's been around, but Facebook advertising became a really big thing. And then you started to see how different kinds of professionals could use a channel like Instagram. And then now you have TikTok. And uh, personally, like I like to use my stuff in a B2B setting. So I use Twitter and LinkedIn are primarily mine. I don't, I can't figure out like what I personally would use TikTok for. Um, But if I were a practicing professional, I think it's an unbelievable way to show off the irrigator or to uh, give people an idea of like the different kinds of vestibular services that you present and, and get, it's like a new form of search engine optimization of like, look, you know, if you're dizzy, like come and see me and understand that like, that's actually how a lot of people get their information today. So I think it's a matter of just kind of, you, you shouldn't be dismissive of it just simply because it's, you feel like I'm, um, I'm not hip enough to do that because I think there's probably something that could work for you that you would be comfortable with. But I think that a lot of it just comes down to trying to understand like what you would use it for and kind of outlining like a game plan instead of just like shooting from the hip a little bit. Is that kind of how you've, your experience has been? I agree. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it, I mean, I've done the shooting from the hip. So have I. <laughs> it is what it is. Like sometimes something works and other times it doesn't. But I think if you don't plan, then you won't get consistency. I, I'm still testing things out, you know, but that's how I am with the business, with everything is I love looking at the data and then making observations and then pivoting. So I disappeared for about a month when we moved into this office. I just couldn't look at social media. This was a lot to take on. We, we moved from a thousand feet to 4,000 and built it out and did all this stuff. So I've been back on for like seven days and I decided, I promised myself I was going to post every day until I couldn't anymore. (laughs) (laughs) I don't really have a plan except, so I do like to batch some reels and I use Canva for my regular. Canva's awesome. So, I mean, it gives us all the tools we need. Mm Mm-hmm. So I batch them. So I'll, you know, when I have time, I'll sit down and do five reels. When I have time, I'll make 10 Canva posts. And then on a certain day, if I feel like doing something fresh, I can do it. And if I don't, then I just post what I had. So I don't have that much thought as far as like today is going to be really or tomorrow is going to be dizziness. I just know that I want there to be variety of what's hitting people. I'll tell you the coolest thing about, about it is all my friends and family know what I do now and they are our best referral source. Yeah. And if they didn't see the social media, they really wouldn't know what I did. So just reaching your, even your small pocket, it's going to be important so that they can send you people. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think we're very much on the same page with this. And again, I think it's just like for the people that are listening is just to say like, um, there actually are, I think a lot of really effective ways to use different forms of social media. Um, I think it's progressing in a way that there's just like more and more. And to your point, like there are so many, there's a been a massive democratization of the tools used to create these things. Again, like when I was in college, you had to, you had to know how to use Final Cut to be able to post a video online. Now in TikTok has like more sophisticated video editing software and anybody can do it. So it like, it's the barrier of creating content's gotten so low. So really anybody can do it. And I think it's just a matter of, again, figuring out like whatever's going to work for you, because I think that to, you know, you're a testament to this is like, there's actually real tangible things that can benefit your business as a whole. 
Yeah, I agree completely. So it's a mix of everything, right? But um, I guess the takeaway from all this is none of it's easy. So if somebody, maybe I make it look easy sometimes, I don't know. It's not, it's hard. And I've had these periods in my business where like startup mode, it was all in, all day, every day. It was some nights, 11, 12 at the office doing things. And a couple years in, there were periods of like, wow, this is getting easier. I've got a lot of help. I can cut out at three in the afternoon and vacation more. And now here we are where I'm putting everything back in again, but with the vision that in the next month or two, my load's going to get a lot lighter, but I'm making that investment right now. So it's not all easy. You've got to try a little bit of everything. And I think looking for, I mean, I just really believe in mentorship. So like listening to things like your podcast, you have excellent people come on and Thank you. you can learn so much just from listening to, to mediums like that, besides going and like, go buy five business books. I, I'm personally of the mind that uh, I, I have a blue ocean mentality. I don't have a scarcity mindset. I think that there is so much room to go around. Um, and I think that we're all better off if we collaborate. I think that we can all learn so much from one another of what's working. Um, you know, I just don't think that that were threats to one another. I think that, you know, I think the industry and, and there's so many people that need this kind of help in these services. And so I think, again, going back to just the fact that like, you're really challenging yourself to grow your business and take it into new directions so that ultimately you can see and, and help more people, I think is really admirable and really cool. And a lot of that comes from figuring out what's working from others. And so I think that there's a lot of power in people collaborating and having an open dialogue of just saying, here's what's working for me. What's working for you? What can I learn from you and apply in my business? What can you learn from me and apply to your business? Yeah, I agree completely. <laughs> awesome, Madison. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for everybody who tuned in here to the end. This has been an awesome chat and uh, we will chat with you next time. Cheers. All right. Thanks, Dave. Thank <laughs> you.